That same day, King Xerxes gave Queen Esther the estate of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came into the presence of the king, for Esther had told how he was related to her. The king took off his signet ring, which he had reclaimed from Haman, and presented it to Mordecai. And Esther appointed him over Haman's estate. Esther again pleaded with the king, falling on his feet and weeping. She begged him to put an end to the evil plan of Haman the Agagite, which he had devised against the Jews. Then the king extended the gold scepter to Esther, and she arose and stood before him. If it pleases the king, she said, and if he regards me with favor and thinks it the right thing to do, if he is pleased with me, let an order be written overruling the dispatches that Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, devised and wrote to destroy the Jews and all the king's provinces. For how can I bear to see disaster fall on my people? How can I bear to see the destruction of my family? King Xerxes replied to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, because Haman attacked the Jews, I have given his estate to Esther, and they have impaled him on the pole he set up. Now write another decree in the king's name in behalf of the Jews, as seems best to you, and seal it with the king's signet ring. For no document written in the king's name and sealed with his ring can be revoked. At once, the royal secretaries were summoned on the 23rd day of the month of Sivian. They wrote out all of Mordecai's orders to the Jews and to the satraps, governors, and nobles of the 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush. These orders were written in the script of each province and the language of each people, and also to the Jews in their own script and language. Mordecai wrote in the name of King Xerxes, sealed the dispatches with the king's signet ring, and sent them, sent them by mounted couriers who rode fast horses, especially bred for the king. The couriers riding the royal horses went out, spurred on by the king's command, and the edict was issued in the citadel of Susa. When Mordecai left the king's presence, he was wearing royal garments of blue and white, a large crown of gold and a, and, a, and a purple robe of fine linen. And the city of Susa held a joyous celebration. For the Jews, it was a time of happiness and joy, gladness and honor. In every province and in every city to which the edict of the king came, there was joy and gladness among the Jews, with feasting and celebrating. And many people of other nation, nationalities became Jews because fear of the Jews had seized them. That's the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, you've given us the scripture for our learning, and therefore would you help us to do just that? Would you give us ears to hear? Would you help us to read and see? Would you help us to inwardly digest this story and the truths that lie within it so that we might grow in hope today? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> As you look at the end of this passage in particular, but even all the shifts that take place here, you have to sort of say, what is going on? What is happening in this story? Uh, foes become friends. Uh, evil is put down. Uh, the powerless are given power. Uh, Esther now shares power with this king, who just 36 hours ago, had it written that not only her, but all of her people would be exterminated. So what what is taking place in this, in this passage? Uh, it kind of reminds me a little bit of the movie Slumdog Millionaire. 
I don't know if you're familiar with this movie, but it's basically the story of these two young boys who grow up in the slums of Mumbai. And one boy, as close as they are, they're, they're without parents. Um, <clears throat> and one boy goes down the, uh, a difficult path and the other goes down uh, uh, a more righteous path, shall we say. And providentially, their stories are woven together so at the uh, end of the movie, this one boy who, who's on this sort of righteous path ends up on the show How to Be a Millionaire. And all the things he's learned in his life, all the good things, all the bad things, are the answers to the questions in the show. And he wins the show, and he becomes a millionaire. And he has a love interest in the show, and at the end, you really don't know if this is going to turn out for good or ill. But it turns out for good, and then suddenly... The two main characters in all the city break out into a dance. And it is awkward and joyous and strange and completely implausible. And you can't help but leave the theater going, every movie should end like that. Every story should end like that. It is an ending that's devoutly to be wished. It's magic. It's, it's fantastic. It's it's amazing. And it's an ending that in this world, in, in many ways, makes absolutely, well, it makes no worldly sense. So we've been calling this series uh, Between Two Worlds because the human condition, the human experience is one in which we feel like we were made for something more, that our relationships are meant to be more, that our the systems in which we inhabit often let us down. We feel like we're caught between a world in which we live and a world in which we desire to live. And in stories like that, in which you see a kind of heavenly conclusion, you can't help but say yes and amen too. And so today with Xerxes, we see him bestowing honor upon Esther and Mordecai. We get from that a glimpse into the future. We see a future world that the Bible is sort of prophesying towards that one day there will be heaven on earth, that one day our foes will be our friends and maybe actually be our family, that the powerless will have power and they'll wield it well. It will be a world that's healed. It'll be a world that's safe. See, this is a picture of restoration. And the reason it says, and everybody feared the Jews, is it means everybody desired what they had. They wanted to be as free as they were. They wanted to be as safe as they actually were safe. And so what we have is a kind of storybook ending. But how does that all come about? It all comes about by one person's impact or encounter with grace. We don't see it here, but we talked about it a few weeks ago, right? When Xerxes realizes that Mordecai, the last person in all of Persia, who would try and help him, had no reasons to help him, had no benefit in trying to help him, actually saved his life. He had an experience and he had an encounter with grace. And so the question I'm asking is, what is so amazing about grace? And if you've been tracking with this, then you know. If Xerxes can experience that kind of change and bring about this kind of change, What's so amazing about grace is that it can redeem anyone, it can restore anything, even you, 
even me, and the lives in which we inhabit. So let's go ahead and ask these questions. What is grace? Why is it amazing? And what do we what do we do with something that is so amazing? So first, what is grace? So as we begin discussing grace, obviously we're not referring to the kind of grace that's spoken over a meal, but we're talking about, we're referring to the catalyzing doctrine of the Christian faith. It is the active agent, the active uh, doctrine of the Christian life. And so as we begin to unpack and explore this word that just sounds so familiar to us, I just want to ask us all to kind of pause for a second and just articulate for yourself and in your own head, what does grace mean for you? And it's not because we want to redefine grace, right? But we want to formulate it in our own minds because there are some words that we're so familiar with, right? And I think that this word, we're actually more readily able to feel than we're actually able to articulate. So what does grace mean for you? And perhaps as you're doing that, you're experiencing for yourself that grace is easier to convey than to explain. You know what it is. You know, that's the the old expression about uh, pornography. I can't define it, but I know it when I see it. And grace is, is like that too. Maybe I can't actually articulate what it is, but I know it when I see it. And so grace is easier to convey than it is to explain. And if that's your experience, you're not alone. Uh, William Shakespeare. Uh, in his play, Measure for Measure, <clears throat> he uh, has a scene in which these three scoundrels, they're all thieves, are in a bar and they're drinking and it's a pretty raucous room. And they start talking about the kind of forgiveness that they desire, the kind of forgiveness that they should or maybe could extend to those within their compromised culture. And <clears throat> one is saying something about forgiveness being uh, for everybody. And even Shakespeare has a hard time articulating or and then uh, conveying what it actually means. Or I should say it this way. Shakespeare recognizes that for all of us, grace is hard to articulate, but it's easy to convey. And so this one particular character, Lucius, is in agreement, and I won't act it out, but just imagine these three very inebriated gentlemen are having a raucous debate and somebody says something about forgiveness and, and he's in agreement, says, I, why not? Because grace is, and he can't really articulate it, grace. Despite of all controversy, imagine a belch in there somewhere. As for example, thou, thou thyself art a wicked villain despite of all grace. And so what is he saying? Shakespeare knows while grace, God's grace permeates our lives, for many of us, on a moment's notice, we have a hard time articulating the meaning of grace into, wor- into words. But we need to be able to put grace into words. We need to be able to put grace into words in order to put grace into action. So what does grace mean? Grace is the unmerited favor of God. Grace is the unmerited favor of God. Now, what does it mean to have favor? Favor in the Bible means uh, a demonstrated delight from God towards his people. A demonstrated delight. When we favor someone, how do we feel about them? What is it? We want to be around them. We want to be around him or her. 
we delight in them, we connect with them on a particular level, uh, in which maybe we don't connect with everyone else. Somebody has favor to you. As a parent, your child has more favor to you than all the other children of the world. It doesn't mean they're not loved, valued. But to have favor says my, my life's intentions, my personality, my disposition, no matter what, is for the for that child. That's favor. <clears throat> and the favor of God can be described as a tangible evidence that a person has the has his approval. Second, unmerited. Now here's the good one. Or not, they're both good, but here's the one that we that really causes some confusion. Meaning unmerit the unmerited favor of God means that you cannot grit your way into God's grace. There's no Navy SEALs training to be a Christian, to be a follower of Christ, to be to enter into his grace. You can't grit your way into it. It cannot be achieved. And that's hard for us because we live in a merit-based city. We live in a merit-based culture. Many of us grew up in very well-meaning homes, but there was a merit-based value system within the home. And therefore, it's hard for us to believe that a relationship with God is one of sheer grace rather than a relationship with God as one of participatory grace. And what's participatory grace? Participatory grace is kind of like, I know that God loves me and pursues me, but I also know I have to work really hard to meet him halfway. I have to participate in that grace. And what this is saying, just the opposite, there's no merit. Grace is... Uh, at his discretion, it is uh, it is by his doing alone. And therefore, there's a, a kind of stillness that one has to have as a metaphor to be able to receive his grace. Uh, Alfred Bloom. Alfred Bloom was a, a scholar who compared world religions. He uh, was a professor at the, the University of Hawaii when I was growing up there. I didn't have any idea he was there when I was there. But he was, and he grew up in Philly, and he was grew up in a Christian uh, uh, home. And when he became an adult, he actually converted to Buddhism. But he talked a lot about uh, grace as it as it as a <clears throat> as a value within different religions. And he said, you know, lots of different religions talk about grace, but no no religion talks about it as clearly as Christianity does. And he said, but you know, he said there's some helpful images in Indian Buddhism, as it helps us understand grace. And he says, even in these metaphors, they point at the right thing, but even in they are not uh, conveying it completely. And one of those metaphors is the idea, uh, there's the monkey and the cat, and they're meant to be compared. And the monkey is uh, an example of grace in that a, a baby monkey latches onto a, a, the mother monkey. And for safety and provision. And so the idea of grace is, is that that mother is there, that mother loves that monkey, and that, that uh, mother wants, never wants that monkey to let go. But the monkey has to hang on. As the mother moves throughout the jungle, that, that monkey has to cling to its mother. See, that's participatory grace. The other metaphor is that of a cat. And the cat takes the kitten by the back of the neck 
and just puts the cat wherever she needs that cat to be. And so you see in each metaphor, you're moving closer and closer, right? Because the first metaphor is one in which the power is on the, on the individual. The, 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 you know, the, <clears throat> the, how, how do you say it? It's, uh, Grace's condition on the, on the baby monkey's power, but in the cat metaphor, uh, the, the power is conditioned on the, uh, you know, on the, on the mom completely. But Bloom says that the clearest, the costliest, and the only actual embodiment of grace in any world religion is that of Jesus Christ. Coming and dying for those who couldn't save themselves. And so there you have <clears throat> a continued struggle to articulate and convey grace. Uh, David Brooks, uh, he wrote in his book, The Second Mountain, about his struggle to really come to terms with what grace means. And he would say he grew up in a really merit-based home and a merit-based culture. And then in his, you know, in a midlife crisis, maybe perhaps he starts to come to faith. And he was reading two people, Augustine and Dorothy Day, and they became his heroes but there was a concept that they talked about which continued to befuddle him that he couldn't wrap his, his brain around and this woman who was his assistant was trying to help him. And that, of course, was this doctrine of grace. And Anne, who would eventually become his wife, uh, wrote this to him in one of her emails. She said, I want to reiterate that, yes, grace is the central thing Christ offers, but that is the doorway, and it is only to know him. I see lots of emphasis on striving in your note, and I appreciate its antidote to cheap grace, but the foundational fact is that you cannot earn your way into a state of grace. This denies grace's power and subverts its very definition. Grace must reach out to the broken and the undeserving. It must reach out to those recognizing plainly, vulnerably, their own need and emptiness. It can only find welcome in those sitting still. And so I hope in this first point, we've been able to kind of sit still and to think about that and to leave ourselves alone and to ask right questions about our own upbringing, the well-meaningness of our, the cultures in which we have inhabited, but where helpful questions can begin to actually make grace that much clearer for us. Grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning and earning is an attitude of the heart. So let's listen to this last exercise, uh, this last quote from the Apostle Paul and sit in this. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand, and we should walk in them. So are you sitting still long enough for him to work on you? Are you still enough for his unmerited favor to rest upon you? Or are you busy striving, trying to hang on? God wants you and I to be shaped for good works, just like Xerxes is here. He's the one who's been the most impacted by grace in this story. Or I should say this, 
He's the latest in this story to be impacted by grace. The reason Mordecai sought to save him is by grace. The reason Esther moves courageously through this story is because she's motivated by grace. And Xerxes is too. Grace precedes his new outlook on life. So the first question, what is grace? Of all the world religions, the Bible gives the clearest definition. It's the unmerited favor of God. And it's for you. Why is it so amazing? <clears throat> Why is it so amazing? Grace is a kind of, comes in a, in a package. And it's packaged together with gratitude. When you experience grace, you cannot help to experience a deep sense of gratitude that changes the way that you move about the world. Grace is amazing because it comes with gratitude. Uh, but when you encounter and you experience sheer grace, sheer gratitude becomes your motivation for ethics. Think about that. Gratitude becomes your motivation for ethics. It's out of this deep sense of gratitude that Xerxes begins to function differently in his political world. And in this, uh, you see this change of ethic <clears throat> in that he becomes more deliberate. He becomes more generous. He, be, he, uh, he begins to think towards the future in shocking ways. What do I mean deliberate? It says the same day Xerxes began to act out these things. The same day. The same day he had heard, or the same day that, that evil was put down within this 36-hour period. Everything changes for him. It makes him more deliberate. Because that's what gratitude does. You have a positive motivation for the things that you're doing. Secondly, he becomes more generous. All of a sudden, you see him giving estates away giving people power. In fact, it seems he's so generous, they just sort of assume power. It's just, and there, Esther appointed uh, Mordecai over Haman's estate. So he becomes more deliberate. He becomes more generous. And he begins to think towards the future in shocking ways. And the shocking way is that Esther comes and says, will you write a new edict? And of course, it appears to be part of the plan. And so all these edicts went out that eventually, originally, that 11 months from that time, that all the, the Jewish people in Persia would be exterminated. <clears throat> and now he's reversing that. Now, that would have been a politically risky thing to do, I think. You know, when you make decisions that you suddenly all change your mind on, People begin to doubt your leadership. They begin to think that you're weak, that you don't know what you're doing. That doesn't seem to be a concern for him at all. He reverses course. He rewrites the future. <clears throat> it's amazing. So in the same way that grace is hard to articulate, we see that gratitude, when it's implemented, can really be hard to believe. I mean, you could imagine hearing that first bit of news if you were a person, if you were, you know, the Hebrew culture. 
for them to hear that new news and to be able to rejoice and celebrate and to see and to, uh, and to believe that God had been at work in all of these particular things. And when we see that kind of extraordinary joy, just like in Slumdog Millionaire, we're cynical about it, we can dismiss it, we can poo-poo it, we think it's fantasy. But it's actually the most brilliant of devices, shall I say. What do I mean by that? Shakespeare is obviously thought to be the most articulate uh, Western person who's ever lived, uh, poet, playwright, so on and so forth. He writes of the human condition in which nobody had do has done since. Uh, he has impacted our culture even today. Like you read things like, here's some phrases that he invented. Break the ice, a heart of gold, naked truth. All of a sudden, one fell swoop, forever and a day. Kill them with kindness. And he also invented the phrase, brave new world. Now, when we think of brave new, new world, we think of this dystopian novel. That's not what he thought at all. He uses it at the end of a sentence, at the end of a play in which everything comes together in celebration. And Miranda says, it's a brave new world. But all the commentators, the modern commentators say that as, as effortless he was in writing about the human condition and knowing the heart and being so articulate, when it came to endings, he was pretty uninventive. They tend to believe that he actually just ran out of time and needed to close up the play really quick. And so he sort of put a nice bow on it. But Marilyn Robinson, who won the Pulitzer Prize for Gilead, she says, that's not at all what happened. She said his artistry, his life, his plays, are permeated with grace. And because they permeate with grace, they end in ways that appear awkward and clunky, unconscionable for us. But it, because it's a brave new world where foes are, become friends and family, where power is put down, where people really do, will one day dance together. It's not a coincidence that Shakespeare was writing in a time in which the culture actually had Bibles present. He knew about grace. So Robinson says this, she, she says, but if Shakespeare did, did take seriously the great questions brooded in his civilization during the whole of his lifetime, then he might have reflected on the meaning behind or beyond it all. Not the geopolitics of it, but the essential shared truth that underlay these aggravated differences. Grace is grace. How would this be staged? So grace and gratitude, if they are at the heart of your life, how is your life being staged? How is it being staged? Do people look at the way that you function in the world and the relationships that you have and, and, uh, and the way that you struggle through them and forgive? Give and, and I'll say forget, forgive and forget and learn and grow and say, that seems otherworldly to me. That life is full of surprises. I never can predict exactly how this community will function, but they bear the same marks of grace and gratitude in every season. 
why when we look around the world at our stories of the families of victims of violence so often um, on the path of forgiveness, but not just forgiveness, embrace of those who are victimized. How is it that high-powered professional types suddenly change direction and work for nonprofits and give away their time and their talent and their experience <clears throat> to those who need it maybe more than anyone but could never, ever afford it? Grace and gratitude. Grace and gratitude. So what do we do with something so amazing? Simply always be growing in grace. Christians are growers. We're like children who know that we there's more to be expected of us. A couple of weeks ago, we had a membership uh, uh, conversation, and one of the things we talked about is, you know, for those in our church, we want people to grow from children to mothers and fathers in the faith. The Apostle Paul says, we, you do not have many fathers among you, and he's right. And if to be a part of a church is to say, I have a growth mindset. I may feel like an infant. I may feel like a kid when it comes to my spirituality. But God's calling me to actually mature so that I can, in a sense, parent spiritually others. And so to have a growth mindset when it comes to conveying grace and articulating grace, explaining grace. You know, Xerxes, this is all happening very fast for him, but he does he's still in process. Right? What does he say? Did you catch it? He says, Haman. Haman attacked the Jews. But that's not really true. They both worked in concert together. And if you think about Haman and Xerxes, Xerxes and Haman, they were two sides of the same king. They were two sides of the same king, but one side of, the, of that king was put to death. Judgment came down on him. And therefore, Xerxes is sort of removed from that. And so when we, what was the lesson that we can learn from that? By grace and gratitude, we ought not to move about the world like Xerxes. We might not, ought, we should not move about the world saying, this particular person or that particular party or that particular community, they're what's wrong with society. We should recognize in our own selves, there are two sides of our own nature. We all have a little bit of Haman in us. And therefore, when we think about grace, we recognize that we were not put to death. We will never be put to death in, a, in that kind of judgmental way in the eyes of God. Though we deserve it. Haman did. And so out of that is just born an incredible amount of gratitude. We never feel the need to wash our hands from the hurts of humanity because we know we're complicit in it. So how do we grow in grace? We need to look back, as, as Xerxes did, into the book of remembrances and see Jesus' grace for you on the cross, providing a completely new relationship to God. And I think that image of the mother cat carrying that kitten, that's an Instagram post, if there ever was one. It's so beautiful. It's nothing compared to what God does for us. You know, at the end of time, in the book of Revelation, it says that, that the lion will lay down with the lamb. You know, in real life, lions 
of predators and lambs of the prey. But this is a picture that one day they will not be enemies anymore. They won't be foes. There won't be predators and prey. There, the world will be a safe place. It'll be a healed place. God is this lion who protects you, cares for you in a sense, in the same way that as, as lambs, <clears throat> we can be secure. So the Apostle Paul says this in Romans 6. He says, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who are baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life if we have been united with him like this like this in his death. We will, also, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with. That we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Now if he died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. So we need to grow in grace, but we also need to be growing in gratitude. And as we think about Thanksgiving coming, I don't mean just gratitude about the good things, but gratitude of our whole life. Because the good things and the hard things shape us. And God uses all of them to draw you closer to Him. The most painful things in my life have borne the most fruit. And that will be true of you. So this Thanksgiving is let me offer a suggestion. Be grateful for all of your life. The good and the bad. You know, and then lastly, grow in generosity. <clears throat> the New Testament has lots of sort of magical moments where you look at it and you go, this is a picture of heaven and our earth. And one of those is in Acts 2. And in Acts 2, uh, the writer says, and all who believed in Jesus were together and had all things in common. And of course, he's talking about provisions. He's talking about material possessions. But that's just the tip of the iceberg. Because he's talking about pains and hurts and anxieties and fears too. They held all those things in common. They held brokenness in common and sin in common. But they also have held hope in common. And the more that we reflect on these truths, the more we'll grow in that kind of generosity too. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for grace. We thank you, Lord, that you provide for us in a way that we have so much language that can help us understand it more and more. Lord, would you fill us with the gratitude that comes with it? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.